You're listening to Inspired Edinburgh, a weekly interview show that brings you raw and powerful conversations with fascinating people from all walks of life. Our mission is to inspire and encourage you to reflect on your identity, beliefs, purpose and worldview. If you enjoy this, please subscribe for future episodes and feel free to contact us via any of our social media channels. Thank you in advance for taking the time to listen to the show and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh, the home of powerful conversations. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Corin Hutton. Corin is an author, TEDx and motivational speaker and founder of Finding Your Feet, a charity that supports families affected by amputation or limb difference through a range of sporting initiatives and social inclusion projects. In June 2013, after suffering acute pneumonia and septicemia, surgeons were forced to amputate both your hands and your legs below the knee. Since then, you've set three world records, learned to fly a plane, abseiled off a multi-storey building and carried the baton for the Commonwealth Games. You were the poster girl for the NHS organ donor campaign. You received the Great Scott Award and Points of Light Award. You were finalist for Scottish Women of the Year 2016 and were awarded an honorary doctorate from the West of Scotland University. You now devote your life to supporting others who face limb loss by encouraging, mentoring, speaking, motivating and inspiring. Corin, it's an honour to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Quite an intro, thank you. <laughs> yes, I mean, so listening back to that now, I mean, how does that feel? I um, get a lot of the things you, you do and you move on. So it's, it's a reminder and it, it's quite good occasionally to look back and see how far you've come. It's not, it's not a bad feeling, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Great stuff. So, I mean, as a, as a sort of background um, to the introduction, it would be great if you could start a bit about kind of your early life growing up and, and maybe a bit about kind of your early career path as well. Sure, I'm a um, middle, middle child um, of two brothers and one brother each side um, and it grew up, I guess, middle class family, parents are self-employed, um, business people, they ran a, a successful truck and trailer business. Um, and I, I, I would say we were comfortable. They wouldn't allow me to say anything more. But yeah, I guess looking back, you know, we didn't do without a lot. Um, spoiled by some people's um, hmm. standards, but um, but you know, we, we we were encouraged to to turn our pocket money and uh, go to work for the weekends and, and and you know earn a few bob early doors. And um, I'm, I'm I'm proud of my parents for that. That they made us confident. Um, they made us reasonably ambitious. Um, and uh, caring individuals, and, mm-hmm. and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I know that you were uh, you, you worked in business, um, certainly laterally. I mean, what what was your kind of career when you began, and, and how did it kind of uh, unfold? Well, I, I left school without going to university, decent grades, but decided I wanted to work. So I started as an office junior and worked my way up. Got into life and pensions industry, worked my way up. And ended up being pretty successful in that. Spent a bit of time in London um, with quite a few of the big um, life insurance companies. Um, and yeah, and, and earned pretty well and, and had money for the, you know, the right ho- holidays and the right car and all these things that you think were important at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd been in London too long and um, I was, I was uh, engaged to be married and um, I, wanted, I wanted to come home. The commute was quite hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just wasn't the life that I wanted. So the first opportunity I got for some redundancy, I took it and, and came back home and um, went into the family business, which I knew was probably going to be my destiny <laughs> from an early age. I wasn't going to be able to avoid this. So, yeah. um, so I went into the family business, at which point my brother left, ran away and left me with it, really. <laughs> um, and, and I was last to touch it. So, so I got involved in the family business, the truck and trailer repairs. Um, I went on to have a sideline business. Um, we downsized and, and lost some of that business, but we downsized and I took the, the vehicle livery business on. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially big stickers on trucks and trailers. Right. And, and I ran that small business and, um, yeah, hard work. Um, and sometimes I got paid. Uh, more often that, that payment got taken back off me again to pay the wages. And that was, that was quite stressful. 
um, running the small business, that, that was quite hard work. Yeah. Um, taking a wage from a big company is far easier, but... Um, <laughs> and then I got ill. Yeah. And that changed the career path quite substantially, so... Oh, uh-huh. yeah. So, so tell me about, I mean, what do you remember about becoming ill initially? Well, I'd had what um, I still consider was just a bad cough. Nobody seemed to think it was anything more. Um, for about two weeks, I coughed all over the, the guys that I worked with and um, they tolerated a lot. I had lozenges and cough bottles and took it, you know, everybody says, try this, try that. Um, and I took a lot. Um, but after two weeks, got fed up. You know, at that point, you need some help from an antibiotic. So I got the doctor's appointment on the Friday afternoon and um, he checked me thoroughly. And gave me the antibiotic I expected. And I went off home to take that. And fully expected the next day I would be um, a lot better for the the, the the village fete. And it was to be a gorgeous weekend and, and I knew I'd be fine the next day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately it wasn't quite like that. I was I was weak and I was feverish. So I knew I, knew I had a, a bug. I knew I, I wasn't awfully well. And we thought it was a chest infection. Um, but my... My nagging mother made me speak to NHS 24. And they were quite calm as well. There was never any panic at all, never any worry that it was more. But they did say, the antibiotics will probably kick in, but why don't you just come up and let us check you out? Mm-hmm. So I did, and I, I got a run up to, to hospital. Um, I remember in the car feeling a little bit lightheaded and overly warm, but it was a scorcher of a day. Mm-hmm. I put a lot of it down to just the heat of the car. I knew it wasn't feeling great anyway, so the combination of the two, it still wasn't a worry. Yeah. But I got to NHS 24 um, and didn't wait at all, which I know now look back, I think, well, that's quite odd, isn't it? Um, didn't sit down and queue or take me straight into a consultant. And she was instantly there and said no more than half a dozen words to me before she asked me to get up on the table. So I guess looking back, you know, there must have been something physically, visually, uh, that, that didn't look good. Mm-hmm. And I didn't make it to the bed. Uh, and I was aware of um, paramedics all round about me. Um, and I came in and out of consciousness a bit. I remember them trying to get my bracelet off me. Really? Um, and and some, some of other things. But I was clearly going in and out of consciousness. And I lost three weeks. Right. Um, wow. Just uh, through um, some of it induced coma, where they were trying to trying to save me. But um, yeah. uh, that first night in hospital, um, that I'm not aware of. It's it's the the reports of my family, if you like. But they were all called to say goodbye, and my body was shutting down. Every Jeez. organ was closing down, and it was so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, previously, I'd been fit and healthy, and I wasn't an angel. Um, I wasn't an athlete. But I did look after myself. I was aware of what you have to do to get the best out of your body. Um, mm-hmm. And yet it took cold so quickly and was killing me. Would have killed me. Unbelievable. Would have killed me. What happened in that three-week period based on what others have told you? Well, I know now I had acute pneumonia and um, Streptococcus A, which lives in us all, um, but it had gotten into places it shouldn't have got, I guess because of maybe lesions in my chest, my lungs. Um, and it, yeah, it didn't, it didn't like those places. The two between them were mm-hmm. sepsis. And the sepsis took hold of my body and obviously overreacts to trying to repair. Um, and it, it was killing me. Um, wasn't expected to survive the night. Um, and just got an 11th hour chance where one of the consultants had spoken to a unit down in Leicester who thought they could help. Um, it's called the ECMO unit. ECMO is extra, I'm going to show off now, extra corporeal membrane oxygenation, which basically takes the blood from your body, it oxygenates it, cools it and pumps it all back round again. Mm-hmm. And it gives your, your chest and your, your heart, your lungs a rest and gives it a chance to recover. Um, and this consultant had spoken to Lester and asked them if they would consider taking me. And it is very much a last-ditch attempt. Um, the effects of ECMO and being so ill mm-hmm. can be really quite nasty. So i um, spoken to the consultant down in Leicester since then, um, and he said, your statistics were really bad, and I shouldn't really have taken it on. 
But he made mm-hmm. the decision, it was a Sunday morning at this point, he made the decision to fly up a team from Leicester in the rear ambulance and to bring up the ECMO machine with them. Um, but they felt there was no chance for me. They, they weren't expecting to be able to help. But they arrived and um, my young brother, he'd just arrived from Dubai and he said it was like knights in shining armour running through a e with their trusty steed, this, this clever machine that was going to... Well, it gave them all hope, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, that they hadn't had for a good few hours. Um, and Chris then said to me, the consultant had said, when we arrived, your stats were much worse. And we should just have turned around and left. Jeez. And we knew there was no hope. Certainly you would have died. But we plugged the machine in and you responded. Um, albeit very slightly, it was a response nonetheless. So on the basis that they had to fly back down anyway, they took me. Um, they took me on the knowledge that it was very risky and and, and probably wouldn't work. Um, but here you are now, maybe, hopefully they've changed their parameters a little bit and now and, and they know now that those stats can be beaten. So ECMO yeah. saved my life and I'm very, very grateful to all them and Paisley RAH for, for what they did for me. Yeah, that's incredible. really is. Mm. So what do you remember about regaining consciousness after the three weeks and coming back to, I mean, what was that like? It wasn't a wake-up moment like some people describe. Um, mm. It wasn't suddenly you're awake and, and you know, everything, uh, you, you take it all in. I didn't take anything in. I do remember my mother explaining it all and telling me it all and it was almost like it was washing over me a bit. I wasn't, I wasn't retaining much at all. I wasn't feeling very much. I guess would be a lot to do with the drugs that they had me on. Mm. I know they took me out of consciousness for tests and then put me back under again. So there was quite a few of those moments where it was explained to me again and again <laughs> um, what had happened before they decided that I, I was now fit enough and well enough to, to try and fight back. Um, and I was hooked up to every possible machine you can imagine. I could do nothing for myself. Mm. No organ worked alone. No orifice deposited what it should have. Or, yeah. or you know, I couldn't eat, drink, anything. So, so many machines beeping away and... and and keeping me alive mm-hmm. um, but it was actually quite a positive time I was in the RH for six weeks and in that time I would I'd describe that as my getting back to life period where it was all about my organs and how they could work and I was made to feel like a, a miracle worker I was made to feel like I was superwoman Every day, all day, there was people saying to me, I can't believe you. I can't believe you've managed to get rid of that machine. can't believe you've managed to cope with that. can't believe you've got through this or survived that. Um, and, and there's a reason for telling you that. But um, I really did feel like I could conquer anything. <laughs> Might have killed other people, but it didn't kill me. Mm-hmm. And I was very proud of that. Um, um, and, I, and, and I fought back in the end of the six weeks. I'd finally get rid of the last machine. Um and at that point, the focus changed a wee bit. The, the, the downside to the ECMO um, was that although your, your body and the ECMO machine had retained all the oxygenated blood for the important parts for your, 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 your vital organs, my hands and my legs had been starved of oxygenated blood. Mm-hmm. So they had turned mostly black. My hands were brittle and solid black. They were quite like charcoal or... Um, ebony, they were solid mm. no flesh in them at all which was absolutely super for pressing the remote control on the, the television and things, it, it worked in my favour um, mm. uh, yeah, and we knew there wasn't a lot of chance with them, but my feet actually had been changing every day the, you know, they might be blue, black at some points but other times it was purple, could really? it possibly be pink okay. um, so we were debating and discussing that, so after the six weeks, I guess the focus changed to what we were going to do about my hands and my legs. And I was considered well enough, despite still several infections and things, I was um, considered well enough to, to tackle the next part. And I was moved to Glasgow Royal where um, what they told me was there would be tests and treatments and scans of my hands and my feet to try and work out what could be saved. Mm-hmm. So... Um, off we went on the Thursday afternoon in an ambulance to my new my new home and my new ward and my new room um, to all the nurses that you don't know and you've got to get to know and, and I'm the new guy and you don't know anyone. And I spent my first night in, in the Royal, which was, um, it was without any kind of dramas. 
waking up the next morning and anyone that's spent time in hospital will know that the, the doctor's rounds happen usually at a ridiculously early time in the morning. Excuse me. And um, they all stood at the end of my bed and I reckon there was probably about eight or nine of them thinking back now. And you recognise the, you get to recognise the uniforms and things. So I knew there was the, the senior nurse yeah. um, and a junior nurse. There was um, uh, the the um, uh, registrar of the, the ward and there's the consultant and two or three, I guess, they would be junior consultants or, or trainees, um, physio, that sort of thing, all in the room. Mm-hmm. But as they do, they're discussing me and my case. Um, you're not part of that conversation. You're just there yeah. in the room. But yeah. um, I, very different from what I believed. Um, the decision had already been made and he announced to everyone in the room that Miss Hutton was to lose her, her hands and her legs this week. Um, and they then went on to discuss a lot of which went over my head and I didn't take it in what would happen and how it would happen and how the treatment would go. But all I'd heard was... I was to lose them and the decision had been made. I kind of held it together, I suppose, as much as I could until they left the room um, and then just had this almighty crash that, um, although like you'll never know, I suppose. Uh-huh. Uh, I hope you never know. I hope I never know again, but um, nobody there with me, no family, no friends that you you would expect would be there for that kind of news. Yeah. Um, but in his defence, I think the consultant thought I knew it seemed right. to be that they all knew and I'd arrived and nobody had thought to ask if I knew. So it's just one of those things. Um, but I got on the phone to my, my, my parents and sort of screamed down the phone, I'm going to get amputated, what's going to happen? Um, and the, the funny, the thoughts that go through your head, um, I remember thinking, I'll never be able to wear flip-flops again. <laughs> it's very odd. Um, I'll never be able to feel the sand between my toes. Um, not the important things that you think should really, you know, how will I look after my son? How will I, mm. how will I cope? Um, I do remember feeling utterly useless and worthless. Really? Um, unemployable, probably. And I had no idea what somebody who loses their hands and legs is called. What's the terminology for it? What can you do? What can't you do? Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that me? Am I just completely disabled and incapable I, I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't know um, and there wasn't a huge amount of peer support that I could turn to that I could ask the questions of mm-hmm. um, so very difficult to find out the information meanwhile you're still fighting infections you're still a lot of problems and you know um, facing an awful lot of operations we, we sought a second opinion and a third opinion and we tried to find the surgeon that would think differently and think outside the box perhaps and who had a new idea mm-hmm. or a new procedure that he wanted to try. Um, and, and we did find uh, that surgeon, but ultimately the opinion of all of them was the same. And um, it seemed open and open shut case that I was to lose my hands and my legs, right. which is what went on to happen. Uh-huh. And what was it like um, accepting that or kind of resigning yourself to the fact that that was going to happen? I think I'm quite good at um, not thinking too much. I, I, I focus mm. on what I needed to, and I was still fighting these infections, so that's what I had to focus on. Mm-hmm. I had to get well. I had to get my iron levels up. I had to eat. I had to get um, you know calories in me. I had to build strength, um, and I had to get well, and I had to get out of hospital, and that was very much my focus. Um, but I had uh, seven visits to surgery, 13 different procedures all happening, oh. They're working on both sides of my body at the same time, hands and legs at the same time. Several different things to try and um, only remove the affected parts and leave me with as much as possible. And then when you're left with as much as possible, how do you work with that? There wasn't enough tissue to cover it. So there's a lot of skin grafts and a lot of plastics work as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the end, surgeons very, very, very happy that they'd... Mm -hmm. Um, saved what they could. I, had, I lost my legs at the shins. Um, we had discussed that there was parts of my feet that could be saved, but they weren't really the parts that were going to help me walk or run or any of these things again. And ultimately, they were certain that I would come back to them six months later and say, take them off. Um, 
probably the better scenario and the suggestion and the advice they gave me was to straight amputation at the shins and get prosthetics as quickly after and you'll be walking well if you push yourself. So so that's what happened with my legs. That was reasonably simple procedures. Um, my hands, um, Prof Hart had decided that he wanted to retain as much as he could for later later life and for later surgery. So they, they had quite complicated procedures to, to, to work with my hands. Um, this hand here was sewn into my hip for three weeks so that the tissue from my thigh would grow on over uh, the saved, the saved um, structure of my hand and uh, eventually they cut that out. So all the skin round here is from my thigh. Oh, right. okay. This one here, they, they gouged parts of my, my lower arm out and twisted it round to try and provide me the tissue up here as well. Um, and I remember them taking the bandages off for me. And I had two surgeons at my side, super excited to see what had happened and how well they'd done. And oh my God, I could have punched them. I really wanted to punch them. What, what, what I saw when I took the bandages off was, well, obviously a lot of dried blood, stitches, um, swelling. Mm-hmm. Um, this hand here was, was very much at a right angle and looked to me like a snake climbing out the basket almost um, and totally discoloured and, and ugly. Um, and yet, God, this one was the, the nicer of the two. And, um, yeah, I, I, know, I, know, I know they're ugly, but he has also left me with um, bones in here that, that can work the computer and the keypad and the touch screen. And mm-hmm. um, I've got partial parts of my palms that feel, eventually I got the feeling back and mm-hmm. I can sense hot and cold and sharp now. Um, so I'm very grateful for what they did, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm never ever going to be pleased with the way they look. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, grateful, grateful for all the effort they put in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent another six weeks in the Royal, and that period is um, all the amputations uh, that were required. What was it like adjusting to normal life again? <sighs> um when life, normal life had gone. It had okay. just gone completely. Um, I wasn't a mum anymore. I wasn't doing the mum role. I wasn't I wasn't seeing them very much. So, mm-hmm. excuse me, the minute you mention Rory, that's me, I'm away. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a four-year-old that needs me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't do anything. So, um, got out of hospital and had to learn everything again. Everything from washing myself and dressing myself and, 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 and coping with the house, coping with mobility, um, um, mental strength, you know, you, you, it's, it was a very difficult time mm-hmm. and, and the smallest of things has to be learned again. Mm-hmm. But um, I always see that you've got two choices yeah. um, and for me that meant I only had one choice. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to sink. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a kid that needed to see... Um, you need to see me being strong yeah. and me being mum. Yeah. Um, so that's where I directed. I guess um, he was the motivation for everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. I mean, knowing what you know now, what advice do you give to people that are going through a, a similar thing that you went through? You know, it's like new amputees. Mm. Well, I do um, with the charity that we set up. I go to hospital um, and I see people in hospital now perhaps just before their amputations, perhaps straight after it. Mm-hmm. Um, as somebody did for me, Olivia Giles came to see my family um, to help and to tell them what it would be like. But she said, I'm not going to see Corinne. She won't like it. She'll hate me. She'll want to punch me um, because that had happened to her. And somebody had come to see her that was doing really, really well and she wanted to punch them. <laughs> but... Um, I guess were different. I think I would have appreciated that. Mm-hmm. I think I would have liked to have seen how someone else copes mm-hmm. and what you can achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, I do get when you're lying in hospital feeling useless, here's somebody bouncing in and you think, oh, brilliant, so you can do it. <laughs> um, so I'm aware of that. When I go to hospital, I'm very aware of that. You're not going to boast. You're merely going to offer a little bit of hope um, that you can get your life back. And it doesn't need to be the end for you. It doesn't need to be useless and worthless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is just a, a question that I've been thinking about. I mean, I've read the NHS part um, talking about 
what amputations is like. It's a sort of Q&A type thing. I mean, what, what does it actually, what's the sensation of it? What does it feel like? I am, um, obviously, an awful lot of painkillers and things at the time, so they do manage to take that a lot of that away for you. Okay. But um, the, the, the reality of, um, okay, you, you, you've physically lost parts of your body. Your brain doesn't get that. Mm-hmm. There's an awful lot of phantom limb pain okay. um, sensation that happens, particularly when you lose it so quickly, um, uh, you know, without paralysis, long-term paralysis and things. Um, it's a real shock to your brain. It, you know, it, it sends all the signals. And even now I can sit here and wiggle every single toe really? and every single finger individually wow. in my head. Um, so your brain doesn't lose that. Um, but it's now under control where it's not painful. The brain sends these signals to parts of your body and when it doesn't get a reply, it tries again and again and again and that's why it becomes painful. Oh, right. uh, I remember somebody in rehab saying to me, it's all in the head. It's all in the head. You, 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 you know, you, it's your, your brain making it up, thereby inferring that it was so simple yeah. to shut it out. Um, and it's true, it is all in the head. It's entirely your brain doing all that work, but you've got to convince that. You've got to work at that and there's a lot yeah. of therapies you can do to try and convince them. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, you have to work away at that. Um, but it doesn't feel like you've lost them. It, it doesn't feel like that. Everything feels like it's still there. Um, and it can mm. be sometimes a wee bit surprising. I'm used to seeing my hands like this, but if I see it in your video or if I see it in a photo, mm-hmm. it's quite a surprise because it's the other side of your brain working and it's not used to it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, it can still be a bit of a shock to think, oh, I don't have any hands, mm-hmm. um, where I see them constantly, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd like to speak to you a bit about um, finding your feet and really where that whole idea came from and, and what the sort of ambition was for it. Um, with, with finding your feet, um, the idea was born out of the fact that, um, one, there wasn't a huge amount of peer support, as I'd mentioned. Um, I didn't know the answer to a lot of questions. And whilst the NHS are brilliant in my mind for what they did for me and the treatment they gave me is superb, mm-hmm. they can't go in to do the emotional support and the peer support. Um, that's that's not their role. Um, a friend had given my, my older brother Davy a check um, and he'd said, Corinne's going to need a lot of things and they're going to be expensive and I want to help. And I don't want to do any silly sponsored things, jumping off a cliff or anything, so I'll just give you the money. And that was a bit of a surprise. I was still in the hospital at the time and thought money had never been the talk, the, the issue. or the, There was never anything about money. It was always about health and fitness and and, mm-hmm. and, and ability and disability. Um, so it was quite surprising to be offered money. Um and then a ball started rolling after that with a lot of friends and family all decided they would do fundraisers and events mm. and there's the Friends of Corrine Night and um, all these things that are very, very kind, but in my mind, hugely embarrassing. Um, and I found that very difficult to cope with. Mm. Um, prior to my illness, I'd, I'd done a lot of charitable things. I'd raised a lot of money. I'd done some superb challenges all over the world, the Great Wall of China and mm-hmm. Himalayas and New York Marathon and, and things like that, that they're great challenges personally, but also you get to hand money over to see what good it does for people. You get to hand over that wheelchair that helps a kid or, uh, you know, it really, it, it's so good to see what you're doing matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and here am I in the position then of being the charity. Um, and being the recipient of that money and, and I was the one getting the pity mm-hmm. and the sympathy and that's completely against everything I ever stood for and I really struggled with it but also I knew people were being kind I knew they were being nice and decent yeah. so you don't want to be insulting either but I really, really struggled with this and I guess the only way that I coped with it was to think and admit that I, I do need help mm. right now I don't like it but I do but I promised myself and everybody else that I would use it to make a difference for other people and I, and I would um, help other people from doing it. So we decided with my brother's um, family, we set up uh, Finding Your Feet. 
um, which came from actually a, a day trip out of the hospital. I had to go and see um, Touch Bionics in Livingston, um, the specialist, world specialists in hand prosthetics here in Scotland. It's, it's pretty awesome. Um, so we went to see them for a day, a day trip, and uh, my brother took me with his son, Scott, and Cooper took me. And um, Cooper was desperate to go into this McDonald's restaurant in the wee pass. So off we go, complete with wheelchair and bandages and everything else. We go into McDonald's and it never struck me before, but um, all that fixed seating and a wheelchair don't go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, yeah, suddenly it's all new and oh, what do we do? And these two ladies were sitting at a table with loose chairs um, and they offered me their table. And I, I immediately, as is my way, I said, no, no, thank you very much. That's, don't, please don't. Um, we're just trying to find our feet. And my brother laughed because I'm sitting there with clearly no feet. Um, and he's laughing. He's saying, you can't say I've got no feet. You, know, you can't <laughs> say uh, finding your feet. Um, and he said, but a good name for the charity. So we all had to be laugh about it, including the ladies. And um, yeah, we decided that was the name for the charity at that point, was finding your feet. Um, and we set it up, I guess, initially to be that peer support Mm-hmm. Uh, to be the service that's there to answer the questions, to tell people, to say, I understand and I've gone through what you're going through. I've been there. I know what it feels like. Mm-hmm. But it actually developed into small clubs where initially just little social clubs and that then grew into exercise and fitness clubs, um, uh, predominantly in uh, in the central belt of Scotland because that's where I was and that's where the medics that I knew were. Um, I initially thought um, that the NHS would give me a list of amputees and I could get in touch with them. Mm -hmm. But of course, state of protection doesn't allow you to do that. So fair enough. Mm -hmm. So you have to go looking for these amputees. You need people to spread the word for you. And that came from the medics and the limb fitting centres and things um, to tell people that we were here. Um, And now we're stretching out. We've got amputees up and down the, the country. Um, and we, the, the, the peer support is there in place. The groups are starting to happen. Um, we're finding the key amputees that will help us organise. Uh, we've got one going in Dundee. There will be Aberdeen soon. Mm. I'm hoping from uh, our meeting that Edinburgh will be pretty key soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leeds is on the go. I've got uh, amputee friends in London. So um, next year will be the year of hopefully seeing these groups happening, the length and breadth of, of, of the UK. It's amazing. It's, really it's so. great and it feels great. <laughs> yeah, it feels great. It feels like mm. I'm not useless and I'm not worthless mm-hmm. anymore. I'm not unemployable. Not only am I employable, I've got just about the best um, um, job that I could ever have. Mm-hmm. And mm. in turn, it gives me therapy when yeah. I meet people worse off than me or just going through the early stages of what I went through. Yeah. Um, you're not going to feel sorry for yourself then, are you? Hmm. So that helps me too. Yeah. And you can't put a price on that either. You know, making a difference in people's lives. It, it, yes. It, it, it shows you what um, the important things in life are. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think is na- nowadays the sort of um, social attitude almost towards people with amputations? I'd say it's hugely changed. Yeah, hugely yeah. changed thanks to things like um, London Paralympics mm-hmm. um, and and cool people, Johnny Peacock on Strictly Come Dancing, etc. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of cool prosthetics out there where um, if I wear my bionic hand or if I wear my pink legs, the reaction is, wow, <laughs> instead of, ooh. Um, mm. You know, I, I, and that's a much nicer reaction for sure. Um where I, I can I can hide my prosthetics if I want to now as well. Like you know, I, I can disguise it, and people are very surprised to find out because I I do walk well and things. But um, I don't think it's it's. Um, I think the sympathy now is um, is a, 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 a proud sympathy. I think people are proud or impressed mm-hmm. that you can be so capable and do as much as you do. Mm-hmm. Definitely, attitudes have changed a lot. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lesson for maybe I'd say all disabled people perhaps as well, is that, you know, sometimes we can look for the negative in people's reactions yeah. um, and we can think somebody didn't hold that door open for me. or You know, I take that as a positive. Maybe they didn't notice. Mm. That's, that's, that's kind. Mm. Um, 
you know, they look for the best in people. Um, most people are very helpful and, and very kind mm-hmm. um, when they see what you're trying to trying to do. Mm. So we've got a copy of your your book here as well, <laughs> Finding Your Feet. And that's that was the, the campaign that you did as well. It was, What's it yes. like looking at that? <laughs> Mostly I can glance at it and think, yep, great picture. And then occasionally I remind myself that that is a naked picture of myself. Um, and we use that for the book because it's such a, I guess, it, it is eye-catching, it's shocking to a degree. Uh, hopefully it tells a message. But we did that um, that photo shoot when um, I was selected as a recipient for, I was to be the first double hand transplant in the UK. Mm-hmm. And that all comes from the clever professor who did all the work for me, had this vision that I could get hand transplants. And that's why he'd saved so much and left so much in, in place. Um, and yeah, I, I originally thought that wasn't for me. I thought I'd been through enough. Um, I didn't want a life of immune suppressants and potential infections. Mm. I didn't think I could cope with that. But because Prof Hart had been so kind to me and worked so hard with me, and it meant a lot to him, I went along to the, the meetings down in, in Leeds. And I met with the, the, the leading hand surgeon down there. And I listened to what they had to say with an open mind, and I went through all the tests. I decided, well, I, 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 it became obvious that the decision wasn't mine originally. They were making a decision about whether I would be acceptable to them. And until that had been made, I didn't see that there was a decision for me mm-hmm. to make. Mm-hmm. So I went along with it and I listened. And then they said they thought I would be a very good recipient for them. They talked a lot about what the results might be. And I knew, although they couldn't say it to me, I knew they felt they could achieve even better results from me. I didn't have the illnesses that some people have, Mm -hmm. the ongoing illnesses. I didn't have the damage that some people have. And I know I have um, this abundance of determination and and inner strength. Um, Call it bloody mindedness if you want, Mm -hmm. that I knew I've got that. And they obviously know at that point as well that this, I will produce good results for them. So it became clear that they could take me from the level that I'm at right now to hugely capable, workable hands. Wow. Um, and I decided that was for me and I would I would put myself through those operations and probably a couple of years worth of physio and a huge backward step where I couldn't drive or walk or look after myself again. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would all be worth it for the positive outcome. So... Uh, so I got involved in the um, understanding the organ donation um, procedure and how it would work, who would donate hands, mm-hmm. um, how it had to be that any potential donor had, the family had to be asked the question. There's never a situation where it's automatic or you've pre, pre-answered those questions. Every family would have to be asked specifically, would you consider donating your hands mm-hmm. or your loved one's hands rather? And that's a very difficult question to have, um, to ask at that time with a grieving family. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, and I got to understand how that must feel to think about your loved one being mutilated like that, um, taken apart like that. Mm. Um, that must be a horrible, horrible question. But I guess the, the flip side to that I've, I've learned and I've tried to understand now would be, what if that is your family member waiting? Mm. Not so much for a hand transplant. I'm honest enough to say that I wouldn't die without a hand transplant. I know that. It's not life or death to me. But for people that are waiting on a heart or a lung Mm. or a kidney, um, try and think about if that was your family member waiting. Then I think the question becomes a lot easier. And there's a lot of people have very good reasons for it. I have no issue with that at all. But I meet a lot of people that say, I haven't got around to it yet, or I'm scared to fill in the form. Mm. I feel it's tempting fate. And and um, I learned a lot about the statistics and the percentage of people that are on the organ donation register is, in my mind, ridiculously low mm. and unacceptably low. Um, on top of that, of the, the 40% of the population of the UK that are on the organ donation register, only 10% of those will die in a way that would be acceptable to organ donation. So it starts to make the whole process look quite difficult. If you die in your sleep, it's no use. If you're in a road traffic accident and you die on site, it's no use. If you have certain illnesses, 
that would prevent organ donation, then that's no use. Um, and it starts to, to look quite difficult to get your, your organ donation and people mm-hmm. are dying every day. Yeah. And that just that, that disturbed me a lot, um, not least of all for me to try and get hands, but for, for other people that are losing their family members. Mm-hmm. So I got quite involved in the organ donation uh, procedure and uh, we had this photo taken. Um, all the, the, the available organs were painted onto my body. Um, we used a, a medical illustrator, a very, very talented guy, who um, painted all those organs on me. Um, and the point was, these are the organs that can be transplanted. The photo also shows my hand painted onto my, my thigh. Mm-hmm. So uh, it illustrates that there are now hand transplants that could be had as well. And it's scarily real. Um, he's so, so clever with his art that mm-hmm. he actually made it all look 3D. Mm-hmm. Um, and although it looks like there's rolls of fat in my stomach, it's actually all the organs and the intestines. Thank you very much. Oh. <laughs> honest, honest, Gov. Um, but it's so, so clever to do it. And we got the professional photographer to take it and get the lighting and everything right. And um, British Transplant loved it. Mm-hmm. And um, we actually took the photo and we did some naughty things with it. We we used what's called guerrilla marketing. Hmm. Went down to London and um, we projected the picture onto iconic buildings around London. <laughs> um, you know, the Opera House and um, it, it, the Waterloo Station and uh, a lot of fun doing that. Um, you know, 40 foot projection of of me up there in lights. And it's <laughs> naughty because you don't ask for permission. You just do it. Yeah. And you get moved on eventually. <laughs> and you go to a different building and that, that all felt that I like that, that, that amuses me. Um, but equally, um, with the, 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 the PR girl was, that was dealing with it for me. She said, the minute you mention, um, disability, amputation, organ donation, charity, then the hard hats and the, the green bibs, they tend to avoid you for a wee while mm-hmm. and they let it happen longer than it should. <laughs> so we got away with it and it, it was a fun thing to do. And, um, yeah, we, we love that. I don't like being the boring charity. We love doing different things that make it fun and, 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 and cool and, um, yeah. and and people hopefully are attracted to that. So, yeah, that's why I got involved in the organ donation register. And, um, and the photo was too good not to use yeah. on the book. Um, reason for writing the book was... was quite simply a few people had said to me you should um a few authors and 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 editor friends had said oh you should but in the back of my mind I know I have a dreadful memory um and the chances of me forgetting so much of what I went through are very real Mm. very good chance of that and whilst I don't want to spend my time remembering it I think it's important that you don't lose sight of the fact that you know every day is one that I shouldn't have had um, my son yeah. now um, still a bit young, probably to be reading at all, but hopefully one day will, mm-hmm. and he'll realise how much went over his head. He was so young, mm-hmm. um, and it might just mean something to him. So it was mm-hmm. it was nice to do that, and and it ticks the box. Um, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, I'm proud of it. I don't know that it'll be on the bestsellers list ever, but I'm very proud of it. And you know, maybe um, it didn't occur to me, but when I was in hospital, I had people reading to me about amputees that had been through certain things mm-hmm. and how well they were coping and what they were capable of doing. I had TED Talks coming in, people, look, read this, watch this. Um, and that did help me. So maybe there's something in the book that would help other people going through some kind of disability or trauma just like it. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I know that you've uh, campaigned, um, I'm just reading here, it says known fondly as Scotland's bionic mum. Yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're awaiting a double hand transplant. I know it's something that you've campaigned to get these on um, donor cards yeah. um, because it, I, don't, I, I believe it isn't at the moment. I mean, how, you've been waiting for quite a while. Mm. What are your... Um, you know, your expectations in terms of, do you think this is something that will happen? And, and if it doesn't, I mean, what will that mean for you? Yeah, I've been waiting three years now. Yeah. Um, and at the beginning, it was very exciting. I had my phone on me at all times and you couldn't miss a call. Your bag's packed um, and you, you've got plans in place. I would keep my washing down because I didn't want to leave it to somebody. My iron basket was always low. Um, and I was trying to be very practical. And what happens if I just disappear one night? Then how do you cope with Rory? How, you know, who'll look after him? How do you get him to school? How does he get to his clubs? Mm-hmm. And we had plans in place and um, I had quite a few false alarms. Um, we are, you know, the very first call would be, are you ready? Are you capable? We've got a potential donor. 
we'll phone you back in a few hours. Um, and in that time, I would be running around the house making sure everything. I was writing notes about Rory and where he had to be at what times, <laughs> um, you know, and, and what he had to pay for what club and practical things like that. And then it didn't happen and it would fall through. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it got to about the fourth or fifth when I, I, I realised three or four hours had passed and I had done nothing. I hadn't planned anything. I hadn't changed anything. Hmm. Um, and I realised I was now quite blasé about it. Um, and if it happened, I now know that I've got a bit of time where they've said, it's good, it's go. Mm-hmm. They can also say it'll be seven o'clock tomorrow morning and I've got time to check and arrange and pack. So um, when the call happens now, I I just wait and see. Um, but there haven't been any for a while, unfortunately. Um, I am a particularly hard match for them. Really? Because I had 25 blood transfusions. Mm-hmm. And that means I've got 25 sets of antibodies in me. And mm-hmm. the donor has to have none of those. So it becomes mm-hmm. quite a complicated procedure to find the match. Never mind all the things that we mentioned earlier about the right the right position when someone dies and, 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 and whether they're on the organ donation register. An awful lot of them are not going to be suited to me. Yeah. So, yeah, I now feel, um, I guess, um, that it might not happen for me. I feel um, time's marching on and I'm getting to that age where I'm not sure the effort of it all is quite a consideration. Mm-hmm. And I guess because I manage so well mm-hmm. with what I'm doing, even now I get tested quite regularly on how quickly I can do a, a button in a buttonhole or pour juice from a, a canister or put an envelope, light on an envelope and things that they test it and they, you know, they time me. <laughs> and I constantly get better and better. And it surprises me because I feel I've plateaued. But no, I'm still getting better and better. And the result of that would mean the the bridge that I'm trying to get Gra- uh, to, 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 to gap is is getting smaller and smaller. Um, mm-hmm. It's less and less necessary, perhaps. Um, but I'm not at that stage yet. I'm not prepared to say I don't want to do it yet. I'm I, I still in the mm-hmm. that would be great camp. I really want them, please. It would make my life so much easier. So many things that I could do that I struggle with at the moment or I use a gadget for or somebody helps me with. Um, and so many things that I just put out my life now. I don't chop a vegetable. I buy chopped vegetables now. Mm-hmm. I just things that have become the norm for me now. Yeah, it'd be kind of nice to be capable of all these things again. Yeah. Tying a lace or doing a zip or, um, you know, uh, even just um, sensory things like just holding my son's hand, flicking his hair, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all these things that they, 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 they all really, really mattered to me before where um, right now I'm, I'm still keen. Mm-hmm. But maybe there was maybe in the future with a time where I just I won't bother. Hmm. So, yeah, but very clever that they can do it. Absolutely, it's superb. Yeah. yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> um, okay, so I mean, at, at this stage, I think I'd kind of like to go um, a little bit deeper, I suppose, in some respects, and cover some of the more kind of philosophical uh, topics. Um, I, I'll start with with one actually, uh, just simply about. In terms of everything you've achieved, you've done a huge amount. You've had a massive amount of celebrity support. You've been on television. You're almost, you know, celebrity status. I mean, what's what do you think's been like the biggest highlight for you? I don't know about celebrity status. I don't, is there a G list? I don't know if there's a G list. I think I'm down there. Um, I, yeah, and, and people will say to me a lot, "What about the you know the I saw you in the paper or saw you in the TV and things?" And I hope they get that this is not just me trying to make myself popular or gain celebrity status. I hope they get that everything I do, every time I do that, this interview with you, is, a, is there's a purpose behind it mm-hmm. and hopefully that will help me spread the word. Mm-hmm. It will bring more amputees in our direction. Um, and, you know, on top of that, it might bring volunteers in our direction. It might bring fundraisers here. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a reason for doing it. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, all that publicity has opened so many doors for me that I'm so grateful for. I don't think mm. I'd ever sit in front of you and say, I, you know, I'm glad I lost my legs. It was it was worth it. Mm. Never, never in creation would I say that. But um, I think uh, we've, carved, we've carved a positive life for me where doors do open for me. And I've been given opportunities that I would never have been given. I, 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 
you know, you meet the Prime Minister and you get to Downing Street and you, mm -hmm. you, you meet the First Minister and you get to Holyrood. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you get to jump out of planes and uh, meet celebrities and uh, it, it, that's all that's all great fun. It's, it's all super and I don't lose sight of that. That I guess this is all part of that uh, second chance um, syndrome where, you know, you, I've got to make the most of this second chance at life and mm -hmm. I, I think you could safely say I'm doing that. The spin-offs become the freedom of Renfrewshire or the the, the, the yeah. honorary doctorate that you mm -hmm. get. These are all very kind honours and the awards that you get from um, different press and things. It's all very, very, very kind that they think you're you're great and inspirational. Um, but again, ultimately, we, we have to use that to the benefit of the charity mm -hmm. um, and it all helps mm -hmm. uh, for publicity and, and, and trying to bring people forward. And, you know, whilst I've been the face of the charity for the last three years, there are more and more characters coming out now who have better stories than me. Um, and and there's absolutely no reason that they couldn't be the face of the charity mm. and they can't help us achieve new things and great things. So that, I guess, is the, the ultimate plan. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. would be nice if it wasn't just me <laughs> on the TV and things. So. Yeah. <laughs> what do you feel is your purpose in life at the moment? I guess um, what I get a lot of, um, I get a lot of out of is seeing um, people find their feet, mm. seeing people that are struggling the way I struggled and coming out of it. Just small steps, it might be metaphorically, they might just be getting over the mental strength, the, the mental issues, the grieving process. Um, it might be physically that they, they physically can get on their feet again and they can push themselves to do sports and uh, and get fit and active again. Um, um, maybe for the uh, the slightly older ones, that's not a, a, a potential for them. It's not, it's not really likely to be the thing for them, but we can get them out of the house and they can meet and mix with other people who feel like them and they can take part in projects and, and, and activities that do make them feel alive and mm. that it was worth it and they were silly to feel that life might be over for them. So I guess that's my main purpose in life is to drag people out of their houses. <laughs> um, you know, and I guess that's, that's a lesson for lots of people, isn't it? It doesn't need to yeah. be amputation that makes you sit in the house feeling sorry for yourself yeah, or absolutely. thinking you can't do things. Yeah, yeah. It can be lots of reasons. It's a great message. Definitely. What would you like your legacy to be? Um, I'm not unhappy with the way it's been already and the people that I've seen develop. Uh, I, I genuinely feel I have made a bit of a difference. Mm -hmm. But, geez, I'm 47 and hopefully there's another good few years of seeing people progress and, and, and making a difference. And that would be wonderful if, if, if they looked back and said... Um, because of finding your feet, because of Corrine, we were able to. Um, yeah. That would be lovely and that would make it worthwhile. That would make the second chance, right? It would make, um, there was a time where I, I thought, was it worth it? Was I worth saving? Um, was I going to be so disabled that it wasn't? Mm. And, I, you know, I know my family felt like that as well. At one point it would be, we would save any little bit of you we can. But then ultimately it would be, what kind of life do you have? Um, but hopefully I've shown them that it was worth the effort for them mm -hmm. and the heartbreak and the upset. Um, so it would be nice if mm -hmm. if that's the way they look back in it and said she did the best she could. Yeah. She pushed herself hard. She achieved what she could. And um, hopefully that she taught her kid the best she could and, and the right values. And, mm -hmm. and hopefully he'll take that on board. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's a quote on your website, actually, which, um, and it, it, this will lead on to the question. You say, before my illness, I thought wealth meant a good car, house and holidays. Now my idea of what constitutes real wealth has changed entirely. So, I mean, in terms of sort of success now, how do you define that? What does that look like? Yeah, your priorities just change so much. Ultimately, yeah. I think I'm still the same person. I know I'm still pushy, cheeky, uh, <laughs> determined a little bit. You know, I know all these things. Um, that hasn't changed at all. And maybe I needed those things to get through what I did. Mm -hmm. um, that hasn't mm -hmm. changed a lot, but my priorities have changed 
significantly, where it's just not worth worrying about um, money or the best of things. Yeah. Uh, what matters is you've got a roof over your head and you can pay for your next meal. Um, and that I'm here to teach mm -hmm. Rory and, and, and um, help him grow up into hopefully a, a good kid. Um, what matters is the people round about me that help me do that and um, and see me pushing myself hard as well. Um, and the, you know the, the love that I can return to all of them as well, I hope. Mm -hmm. That's that guess that's success, isn't it? It's not the house you live in or the car you drive. Of course, it's not. <laughs> Doesn't matter a jot. But again, if you put that together with the second chance thing, oh, there's so many things I want to do in the world, and my bucket list is so huge. And unfortunately, the the the, the bank balance isn't. So you, you've <laughs> got to try and get the the balance right to be able to afford to do some cool things. Yeah. Um, um, you do need you do need some pennies to be able to do it, but. Hopefully my um, my ambitions aren't so great that it will cost the earth and we can make them happen. What are your bucket list goals? Oh, wow. Um, I've just done one of them. I've just come back from Safari. And that, that's been a long-term goal for me. Um, I, I took my, my son. My parents had treated us all, which is very nice. So they're using up our inheritance too. Um, but we all went in Safari and um, I tried to impress upon my son that he's nine years old and getting to do something that I've waited till I'm 47 hmm. to get. Mm -hmm. um, and what, um, how lucky he is that he's been able to get that so young. Um, and how lucky we are that we can travel to cool places and see great things and spend it with grand and grandpa and aunties and uncles. Um, so, uh, yeah. Bucket list on top of that, yeah, the, the places in the world I'd love to see. I'd love to do the other side of the world, um, Australia's and, and mm. New Zealand's. I'd love to see that, but that's probably not going to happen while I've got that kid that kid to look after, you know. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's probably places in the world I want to see. Um, yeah, they, they, yeah. You'd swimming with sharks and, and, and you know, all these sort of things. You, you, yeah, things yeah. that make you feel alive. Mm -hmm. um, very much on the cards and talked a lot about at the moment is Kilimanjaro. Um, and that's almost certainly going to be a trip for finding your feet next year. And um, we'll be looking for people who want to do that and help find your feet at the same time. Um, and um, I'd, I talked about it. And then decided I lost a lung in March, um, two thirds of my lung, mm -hmm. through scarring that was left over from the pneumonia. And I didn't realise it was causing me such a problem, but could potentially have been fatal if I was on immune suppressants. So it yeah. became such a big problem that um, if I wanted a hand transplant, then the lung had to go. Didn't know it was so much at the time, but I lost two thirds of it. And then spent a lot of time, I didn't realise that the third that you're left with is expected to expand into the full size of the lung that you lost. Um, so I, I, I've i learned to do the chest physio that you require to, to help your lungs grow and expand and take in the full capacity of air that you need. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew how hard it was for me. I did London Triathlon recently. Um, quite amused when in the press they said, um, Corinne has just completed the world's biggest triathlon, which is true in that there's 13,000 people do it. So it's a very big triathlon, but they made it sound like I'd done this huge distance, <laughs> yeah. when in fact I'd done the super sprint, which is actually quite tiny by comparison to these brave souls that are doing a lot. Um, but yeah, Corinne's just uh, done the world's biggest triathlon. I'll have to laugh about it. I didn't correct them, actually. Um Never get around to that. Um, but that um, made me realise the function of my lung mm. and how it affects my life. And uh, climbing Kilimanjaro and the effects of altitude and things, I think I'd pretty much decided um, might make it too difficult for me. Um, I spent the first six months of this year with constant sores on my stumps. Um, they're just never recovering. And I realised that's because I was never given the chance to recover. I mm -hmm. uh, went without my legs for four days. Just um, I, that sounds nothing to most people, but that was hell on earth to me. Mm -hmm. um, four days of staying in the house and, and not putting your legs on, not being able to do all the, the usual things. Um, 
that was horrific for me. But my mindset now is that when I'm not out doing crazy things or walking through Edinburgh, um, you know, when I don't need to have them on, I need to take them off. Mm. So I'm trying to allow them some rest, even if it doesn't feel like they're sore, even if I don't have sores. Mm-hmm. And I've got to the point where now where they're, they're a wee bit more rare. So if I'm going to do Kilimanjaro, I need to do that without sores. Mm-hmm. Almost certainly it will incur sores. So how do you cope with them? Yeah. How do you make sure they don't get infected? Um, and how do you just cope with the pain of it all? Um, so I had quite decided that um, I had to admit that I had, it was too tall an order for me. And then we put the message out to see who was interested. And a lot of people come back saying, I'll do that. A lot of fun people that I know very well. And it started to look like this is going to be great. And I wasn't going. And I had a severe petty lip. Um, and started to think, I am disabled. And I can't do this because I'm disabled. And I hated that feeling. So we went back to the drawing board again. And we've talked about it. And we're trying to work out how I can do it. Mm. And how to, how, to, how to get through it. And to... Part of me says, are you better to try and fail than not try at all? Mm. And I think the answer to that is yes. And because of my bloody-mindedness, then I think I think I, I have to believe I can do it. I'll probably be in bed for a week after it. Mm. I'll probably damage myself trying, but I have to do it. So Kelly's on the bucket, bucket list for next year. So... Um, yeah, if anyone wants to come and join me, I'll, you'll probably make me you'll 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 make me look um, slow. So it's fine. Off you go. You'll look brilliant in my in my shadow. Thank you. Um, so yeah, Kilimanjaro is the target. Amazing. <laughs> what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, my philosophical brother probably is the one that brings me all these things, and um, he would sit in my hospital bed. Every night at nine o'clock. Um, not in my bed, that sounds wrong. The end of my bed. <laughs> Every night at nine o'clock when you're not allowed to have visitors. That's when David would appear. And he would say, why are you in your pyjamas? <laughs> why are you not getting lipstick on? <laughs> I've had a whole day of visitors here, you know. Um, but he, um, he he brings me a lot of um, um, optimistic, positive thinking things. And... Um, I use the analogy quite a lot where I think um, he might even have told you it about the two panes of glass, the rear view mirror and the size that is mm. versus your windscreen of your car and the size that that is. And to cut it short from basically they're that size for a reason, you do need to look back occasionally to see where you've come from. And that's important. But your windscreen is, is the biggest picture you need because you've got to look where you're going. You've got to have a focus on the future and where we're going. So, um, yeah, let's use the rear view mirror scenario. Hmm. And I want to be looking forward as much as possible. Yeah, that's great advice. It really is. Very Davy. Darn. They're <laughs> complimenting them. Anyway. <laughs> if you had the opportunity to speak to your 20-year-old self, what would you say? I have. Um, at 20 years old I was quite serious and grown up organised constantly in control um, and just so mature and you know 27 years later you, you look at that and think what's the point what's the need life is so much more than that um, laughing is an essential point for me you have to laugh it's the biggest medicine it's um that you can get your hands on it just it just sends positivity around your body so I try and laugh a lot um I can't be disorganized it's not me Hmm. and disorganized means panic and nerves so that that wouldn't go but um the things that I worried about then the things that I thought were important then they really aren't Hmm. Uh, so I guess my um, I would I would tell myself to chill a bit and mm. live a bit, uh, not be so serious, don't take things so seriously. Uh, go and have a laugh, <laughs> go and live, go and really really live. Um, but yeah, I'm getting a chance to do it now. So, yeah, I was going to yeah, say right. that's I, kind of what you're now doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. Last one's a big question. 
If you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? Whoa, um, what are we talking superpowers? Are we talking... Anything at all? Um, well, do you know, if it's superpowers, then wouldn't it be great to grow new bones or hmm. invent um, limb regeneration? Uh, wouldn't it be great that you could fix that 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 problem? Hmm. Um, but, you know, I'd settle for small things. Wouldn't it be great uh, to, to touch your son's hair or tie the laces? Or hmm. um, These are all things that I would love to be able to do. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I, yeah, we are changing the world slowly and finding your feet and the group of people that I work with. So brilliant. We're just making small steps at changing the, the, the views of people, research and development. We're getting to campaign and um, lobby decisions uh, mm. in the health and benefits. And um, uh, yeah, we, we, we're, we're getting involved in a lot of great things that hopefully will make life a whole load easier for, for amputees and, and those with limb difference and those mm. affected. Um, and the families as well. We're mm -hmm. putting them all in touch with each other as well. So, yeah, um, if we can keep changing those things, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd be happy with that as well. But, yeah, give me the superpower. Well, <laughs> that's my answer, superpower. Yeah, superpower. Grow like limbs, grow new limbs, please. Yeah, wow. Well, maybe in the future, you never know. Wouldn't it be but, wonderful? Uh, yeah. But I, I think the work that you're doing is absolutely incredible and, yeah, power to you. Thank you, Elliot. It feels... Pleasure. It feels great. It feels like we've got real purpose and we are yeah. making a real difference and um and and hopefully people are finding their feet because of us. Brilliant. Corin, thank you so much for your time today. I've I've honestly loved speaking with you. Um I want to thank you as well for your you know, your openness and your honesty and your candor. It's just yeah, you you really are an inspirational person. So thank you so much. Don't know. Thank you very much for having me though. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Corin. Cheers. You've been listening to Inspired Edinburgh. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe for more powerful conversations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show and we'll see you at the next episode.